You can turn over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're going to continue through the book of Romans. And I just love how God arranges our studies together, sometimes even with what's going on in the news. (laughs) And uh, this morning I want to speak to you about a a subject that's uh, very poignant, I might say, but it's called the Jewish Advantage. And he speaks of this in Romans 3 and in Romans 9. Uh, And so we want to look at that this morning. We're just going to start in on this um, section as we look at our text, verses 1 through 8. But we'll probably just get through the first two verses today with some background information. Had a uh, hard drive crash this last week, so I've been furiously trying to catch up the last couple days. And, you know, when a hard drive crashes, um, it basically, um, or is in the process of crashing, as this one was, I was trying to start the computer up, steal some of the documents off of there that I thought were important to me, and then the thing would shut down, I'd have to let it cool off, and, and I knew it was the hard drive because that's what was causing it, I kind of isolated that. And I was able to recover most of what I needed, um, but, you know, there's nothing like that, seeing everything that you have on one little disk. And I have backups, too, but sometimes the backups are uh, far and few between. So it was uh, good the last uh, 24 hours, at least, to get at least most of the, the stuff that I thought was important off that, that thing. And now you've got a new hard drive in this computer, so now you've got to re- reinstall all of your software, which is just a pain. But anyway, so that's what I've been doing in the heat And uh, as my uh, lovely wife sits over in the air-conditioned office, uh, mine has no air conditioning nor heat, so hopefully that will be taken care of in the next couple months. But anyway, uh, we want to look at the Jewish advantage this morning. You know, every uh, speaker has a a story that sometimes they like to tell or whatever, and uh, sometimes those stories are focused in on a certain profession. And even the legal profession has a a story about itself. There was a lawyer friend. He tells a story of a novice attorney who was defending a man who was accused of biting off another man's ear during a fight in a bar. And he was uh, in the courtroom, and uh, the witness was on the stand, and the lawyer was cross-examining him. And he asked him this question, did you actually see the defendant bite this man's ear off? The young attorney asked, and the witness replied, no, sir. And that was the answer that this attorney wanted. That was the answer that this attorney needed. But unfortunately, he made a mistake. It's not all too uncommon to young lawyers Instead of ending his cross-examination right there, when he was ahead on a winning track, he continued to ask questions. And the next question he asked the witness was, What exactly did you see then, sir? And the witness replied, I saw him spit it out. He didn't see him bite it off, but he saw him spit it out. The point is this, simply, that sometimes going too far or failing to quit when you're ahead is a serious mistake when you're quabbling over legal issues. Well, when we come to this passage in Romans, chapter 3, 
Um, there's some people that think, boy, Paul just took it too far. And Paul even understands that they're thinking that because he begins to ask rhetorical questions throughout the text. And we're going to be looking at those in the next couple weeks. But the problem with Paul's argument is simply that it seems that he took too, went too far beyond the boundaries as he comes to the end of chapter 2. Now, we know he didn't. He's inspired of God to do this, but his accusers are thinking he did. And you say, well, why would he say that? Because he's trying to prove in Romans chapter 2 that basically what? All men, right, whether you're Gentile or Jew, everybody is guilty before God. That everybody is tainted with sin. Everyone needs a Savior. Michael W. Smith wrote a song one time, You Really Need a Savior. I I used to love to listen to that song. Um, No one can save himself. This is Paul's point. But Paul has basically argued this case so forcefully that he virtually has equated the Jew who was thought to have this great religious advantage of being Jewish, he's basically equated him with the Gentile in their mind who had no religious background at all. He says in chapter 2, verse 9 to 11, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Then when he reaches the end of chapter 2, he defines Jewishness in a way that has virtually nothing whatsoever to do with the person's religious or ethnic heritage. Look at what he says at the end of chapter 2. He says, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And his critics, his opponents, are saying, wait, doesn't this prove too much, Paul? Haven't you gone over the line? You should have stopped while you were ahead. If God treats Jews and Gentiles alike, showing no favoritism, and if the only thing that makes one truly Jewish is an inward transformation by the Holy Spirit, then what's the big deal about being Jewish? That's what his opponents are asking Why did God institute circumcision? If Paul is right, these things are pointless. To put it in other terms, what is the Old Testament all about? Why did God bother to choose Abraham and establish his descendants, the Jews? Why did he do that? As a special covenant people, his chosen people, if there's no advantage to being Jewish. If Paul's right, then all these things are pointless. Circumcision, the whole thing. Since we know that what God does is not pointless and must have a proper purpose in doing it, isn't it the case that Paul must be wrong in his conclusions? That's his opponent's viewpoint. 
whether or not we can detect the weak point of his arguments. You know, this is worth how they're thinking when they read this. And it's very important for us, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, it makes no difference that we talk about these things. Um, we've been talking about the Jewish people's spiritual advantages or lack of them, but although the, the Jews' apparent advantages are different from the Gentiles, his situation and the Gentile situation are the same. They're both lost in their sin. And so, as Christians, as we went through chapter 2, I said, think of circumcision as baptism. And Paul asked, you know what, if you just go through uh, baptism as a Christian, but you continue to live like the world and you, you don't make any change, there's no change, there's, there's no difference, big deal. So what? You joined a church or you, you went through the waters of baptism. That doesn't mean anything to God. And just like circumcision, baptism is an outward sign of an inward change, something that God has transformed your life, and you're giving testimony to the fact that you came to a point in your life where you realized that you were desperate for God as a Savior. There was nowhere else to turn. And so, as Christians, we may ask ourselves a similar thing that some of the Jewish opponents were asking Paul. What advantage, then, is there to being godly? What advantage is there to being a church-going person? Why not just sit home and watch the ball game Sunday mornings? What value is there in baptism? What value is there in church membership? What value is there in communion? Or any religious exercise that we go through? Since we're all under the condemnation of God anyway, who cares? And so I've entitled this little mini-series here, The Jewish Advantage. And I want us to ask this question. As a religious person, do you have an edge? Do the Jews have an edge? Do they have an advantage? And if they don't, why should we bother with religion at all? Let's just enjoy ourselves, sit along with the heathen. I mean, if we do have an edge, then isn't there the case that it is possible to please God by our religious practices and maybe even be saved by them? Obviously, I'm playing the devil's advocate with that question. But it's very clear here by Paul the apostle, he's outlining for his Jewish audience what it means to be Jewish. So let's turn our hearts to God's word, and let's just read the first eight verses of Romans chapter 3. And uh, we're going to just basically get into the first two verses. But Paul asks the question in verse 1, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or, to put it another way, what is the value of circumcision? And he says in verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, Paul says, let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. 
By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. Now, there's a lot in those verses, and you're probably thinking, oh, what's this talking about? I want us to look first and foremost, basically, what it means to be Jewish. What does this mean? Why is it that God shows those people, chose those people, to share with them the message that they're entrusted to share with the rest of the world? And that's what he says there. What then is the advantage the Jew has? In verse 2, he says, oh, there's a lot of advantage to begin with. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's the only advantage he deals with in this chapter. You say, well, are there other advantages of being Jewish? Yes. And I listed them there, and they're all the way over in chapter 9, and we'll get there when we get there. But if you look there, just real quick, I just want to read these two verses. Chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. He starts off chapter 9, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. (laughs) He was was causing a lot of rumbling in his community with some of his teaching. He says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And then he goes on and he explains who they are. They are Israelites. And to them belong, and he begins to list these advantages, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. And we'll discuss each and every one of those when we get there, but here in this text, it's almost like Paul says, there's a lot of advantage to being Jewish, but you know what? I'm going to focus on the advantage. The main one. The one that is most important. That, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And I think that the reason Paul focuses on that one first here in this text is simply this. Every other advantage a Gentile can't have. A Gentile can't share in. We can't be part of the patriarchs, if either you're Jewish or you're not. You can't be of the ancestry of Jesus Christ if you're not Jewish. That's, you, can't, you can't just say, oh, you are, if you're not. You can't be part of the covenant if you're not Jewish. But when it comes to the word of God, we can share his word, Gentile, Jew alike. And it will have an impact on your life. And so we have to remember and remind ourselves that it's a privilege for us to be examining a copy of God's Word today. It's a privilege. My wife was communicating with a, a gentleman over in, uh, overseas somewhere, I can't remember where, but uh, he's in need of some Bibles. 
He says, you know, our people have no Bibles. And I thought, wow, what an what a odd thing. You're a Christian and you, and you don't have a copy of the Bible? I mean, how many copies do we have in our house? How many copies do we have in our offices? You know, I mean, stop and think about it. Uh, it's not a, a big deal. I remember one time I was traveling to a conference, and I don't know how, but I forgot my Bible. This was before iPads and, you know, all that stuff. And I was just mortified thinking, how can I go to this Bible conference without a Bible? And I remember going to the hotel first and checking in kind of early, praying that there would be a Bible in the, you know, the little nightstand, at least so I could take my little Gideon Bible. So I wasn't like, like a total fool. And uh, I just felt like, man, I was panicking, thinking I don't have a copy of the scriptures, and I'm going to this conference where everybody's going to be looking at their Bible except me. Uh, that's not going to be good. Nowadays, you got them on the iPad, you got them everywhere. That, that's great. But, you know, it, it, was, it was, and they did have a copy in there. Actually, I opened up one nightstand that had the Book of Mormon, and I kind of panicked, and the night, next nightstand had a copy of the Bible. So, I thought, okay, they're trying to cover. So I think I, I don't know what I did with that Book of Mormon, but I think I got rid of it. And uh, left the Bible there. I borrowed it for a couple days, but then I put it back. So, um, but there was a panic in me thinking, wow, you know, I have Bibles all over the house. I have Bibles all over my office. And how could I forget something so precious to me? And that's sometimes what we want to stop and we want to consider the word of God. Is it precious to us? You know, it says here that they were basically chosen by God, tells us that throughout the scripture, the Old Testament, that he chose Abraham and his descendants. And when you stop and you think about it, why is it that God shows these people? Why did he show them the oracles of God? Why did he choose them to be the the stewards of this and to share it with the rest of the world? Uh, Did you ever think about that question about your own salvation? Why did God choose you? I have. I've thought sometimes, why would God choose somebody like me? Why, you know, there's so many other people that would, would be such a bigger benefit to his kingdom. Um, much more gifted, much more intellectual, and much more able to speak well and all kinds of things. You know, why would God choose somebody like me? For salvation, for service. Um, The scripture says that in me dwells no good thing. And so it's a a tremendous privilege to be chosen by God. And, you know, the, the thing that really helped me understand why God chose me was in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, you can turn over there. I'm just going to read a portion of this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Verse 4, Even as He chose us in Him before, what? The foundation of the world. that we should be holy and blameless before him. So God chose me before there was a me. 
Okay. <laughs> so God chose me before I learned how to play the piano. God chose me before did this, did that. Chose me before any of that. Why did he choose me? He chose me because he wanted to choose me. He chose you because he wanted to choose you. It's his express purpose. That's the whole point. It says that he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to what? The purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have the redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth as in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on the earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Notice it says that you believed in him. There's a lot of people a lot of Calvinists, actually, that become very fatalistic in their theology. They become kind of like Paul's opponents in Romans. Well, if God's chosen who he's going to choose, then why should we do anything, right? Let's just go have a good time, because if God chose us, we can't be unchosen. He's not going to renege on his thing. So why do anything? Why pray? Why witness? So you can become very, very fatalistic. That's why God put this in here. This says, wait, you have to remember that it's important. Verse 13, in him you also heard the word of truth. When you heard it, you heard it. You were in a place where someone was teaching it. The gospel of your salvation. And then you what? You believed in him. So there's a, there's a coming together here of our volition and God's eternal purpose, which I don't understand. If you understand it, that's wonderful, but you'll be the first person that does. He sealed us with the promise of his Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our, our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So praise to the praise of his glory. When you stop and you think of the idea of God choosing you, it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with you now, does it? <laughs> to me, that's kind of comforting in a way. Because, you know, rather than sit around and try to figure out why God chose me, I don't have to do that. I just have to accept the fact that he did. But what's interesting here, it's a tremendous privilege to be chosen by God. It's a tremendous privilege for the Jews, the Jews to be God's chosen people. It's not something you understand. But you know what? That's what the word of God says. And you look at their track record as you can look at our own track record, sometimes you scratch your head and say, "Why would he pick a people like that? Stiff-necked. Man, they're disobedient at every turn." And yet we're the same way. 
So why should he call us to himself? Why should he choose us? And see, this is what the Jews were asking Paul by the end of chapter 2. They were saying, look, if, if Jew and Gentile are the same, they're in the same boat, then what's this whole thing about God choosing us as his people? It probably makes no difference then if your argument's correct. I mean, Paul literally got out his club in chapter 2 and beat over some heads, you know. I mean, he was, there was some blood at the end of chapter 2. Because he wanted them to understand that, you know what? You cannot trust in ceremony. You can't trust in religion to save you. Why? Because ceremony cannot save you. No matter how religiously you keep that ceremony, practice, whatever it might be, it's not going to save you. No matter how much we keep the trappings of our religion, it will never save us. That's, that's the unique thing of Christianity. See, every other world religion is, you know, you've got to kind of do more, and then the, the God of that religion gives you a bigger hug, and you get greater reward, and all those kind of things. So Paul really blasts those who were involved in all kinds of ritual, religious ceremony, Jew and Gentile alike. Some of the Gentiles were involved in pagan ceremony. He he hits them pretty hard in chapter 2, too. And so he leaves them standing there, as it were, spiritually barren, spiritually naked. And the Jews are going, I guess it's not a big deal to be Jewish then, Paul, if what you're saying is true. And that's the question that he answers for us in chapter 3. The Jews' advantage, the Jewish advantage. Uh, I don't know if you've ever talked to a Jew who's come to faith in Christ. But they have a wonderful foundation of knowledge that comes from their training, their religion, their upbringing, based on the Word of God, on the Old Testament. And when they become a Christian, when they put the dots together and they realize, wait, Christ is the Messiah, and they start to, God does that work in their heart, transforms their heart, usually a Jew who's come to faith in Christ just takes off spiritually. Just, just blows out the walls. I mean, it's just phenomenal how fast they grow because they have this incredible foundation spiritually if they were so blessed to have one. Some Jews, unfortunately, nowadays don't go to synagogue. They don't know anything about their heritage. Growing up in the Catholic Church, I missed a lot of that. I mean, I went to church faithfully and everything, but I didn't have any understanding of the Bible. I didn't have any understanding even of the Catholic faith, to be honest with you. I was kind of an ignorant Catholic. Went to Mass every week and was an altar boy and all that, but I didn't know, you know, a lot of things about what we believed. And that's why it's so important, parents, to be teaching your children. And a lot of Jews are very big on this. They teach the heritage. They teach the scriptures to their kids. They can memorize. They understand it. It's so important as Christians that we take that stance with our own children as Christians, that we're willing to invest in our kids, make sure they're learning the word of God, make sure you're spending time with them, reading Bible stories, even when they're small, having them memorize verses. It's a blessing to be part of that as they come here and, and we're able through the, the Christian education that we provide as a church, you know, just to kind of 
help out a little bit with that. But it's not our responsibility. It's your responsibility as parents. And if it's not going on in the, the home, bringing them to Sunday school once a week is going to do little or no good. You need to make sure that you're doing the right thing as Christian parents and you're giving them that, that foundation of God's word that they can use as a springboard when later on they come to faith in Christ. We're just an extension of, I pray, that what you're doing in the home. And do you know that the word of God was not given to us so that we could just increase our intellectual knowledge of it that's that's not the purpose of the word of god the word of god was given to us so that it could change our lives it could transform us it's not enough just to understand intellectually what's in this book you have to stop and say how is it affecting change in my life why when someone comes to Christ who's of the Jewish heritage, a lot of times they'll say they're twice blessed because they've had this heritage, they've had this depth of knowledge in God's word, and then they come to Christ and coming from that Jewish heritage and then coming to know the Messiah of their own heritage. What what an incredible thing. Unfortunately, today in the world, and this isn't anything new, there are Gentiles who believe that it's degrading to be a Jew. They participate in Jewish jokes, anti-Semitic jokes. I want to say this very clearly. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have those kind of feelings toward those who are Jewish, you need to repent. It's sin. It's wrong. It's sinful to have those kind of feelings. And you should be sorry before the Lord and, and go to him and ask for his, beg for his forgiveness. We should be deeply indebted, brothers and sisters, to the, the Jewish people and what they've done for us. Do you know that the writers of the Old Testament were all Jews? Do you understand that the people who basically were the prophets in the Old Testament were Jewish. Do you understand that Jesus was a Jew? The apostles were Jews. Those of the faithful early church were all Jews. See, we owe a, a debt of gratitude to those who are Jewish. And if you have anti-Semitic feelings in any way, shape, or form, you need to identify it as sin and confess it and move on. Don't take part in that kind of thing. If it's in your heart, you need to repent of it. Tell the Lord you're sorry. We owe them a great debt of gratitude. Well, what advantage, Paul says, is there in being a Jew? Paul answer, Paul's answer is that circumcision and being Jewish are true advantages, although he says they're not the kind of advantages we're, we're thinking of. Um, that's not what they wanted to hear. And we've listed there in Romans 9 some of the advantages that Paul lists out, and we'll get to those when we get to that. But it's, it's important to understand 
that first and foremost, as I said earlier, it's that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with God's holy word. No other people were entrusted with God's word. I mean, I think Paul may have wanted to include those other eight, those other seven advantages here in this text, but he said, you know what, that's going to take away from the importance of them being entrusted with the word of God, and that's the true advantage that they have. That's the chief item. That's number one. As Gentiles, we can't say that we have the adoption of sons. We can't say that we have this divine glory from God as a people or the covenant or any of those things. We can't say that. But we can say that God has given us his word. He's given it to both Jew and Gentile. And so he says there that he's entrusted them with the oracles of God. They were entrusted. They were to be stewards. Uh, This goes back a long time. You know, if we went around the room and I said, how many people can trace your heritage back, say, 4,000 years? Probably not many of us could do that. Unless you're Jewish. Most Jewish people can trace their physical, I'm not speaking spiritual, physical heritage back thousands of years. That's just amazing. Now, their heritage has been rough. It's been rocky. Uh, it's been a tough time. Just think in the Old Testament, you think of, of Pharaoh and his domination of the Jewish people in Egypt. The oppression that he put on them. Uh, God delivered them through the Exodus. He raised up Moses. Then you think about how Assyria and Babylon, uh, their captivity and their persecution of the Jews. I mean, over the years, the persecution and oppression of the Jewish people has been incredible. It's been amazing. You think of the Roman oppressions of the Jews in 70 AD. The Roman general, Vespasian, went in there and basically leveled the place, leveled it, slaughtered them all. 73 AD, a band of freedom fighters They basically committed suicide as they were being attacked rather than being captured by the Roman garrison. You can go there today and see where that all took place over there in the Middle East. It's amazing. You think of the Middle Ages when the Turks, the Muslims, they were oppressed terribly under them. Do you know that Jerusalem has been leveled 13 times? Leveled. Not just part of it burning down. I mean leveled, nothing left. Archaeologists have actually had the ability to dig down and they see 13 separate cities of Jerusalem. Each time they'd level it, they'd come back and they'd build it up again. God gave them that ability. It was the place where God himself came to dwell among his people. Even the English from 1919 to 1947 oppressed the Jewish people in Israel terribly. We cannot forget under Hitler and the Jews how they were oppressed and slaughtered by Nazi Germany, some six million Jews and three million other races, by the way. They had a horrible, difficult history. 
But I want to ask you a question. How many Canaanites are living on your block? How many Jebusites do you know? you have any Hittites that you work with? got any Philistine friends? I don't think so. They don't exist. God has miraculously and marvelously preserved his chosen people, the Jewish race, throughout history. And he's going to continue to do it. He continues to preserve them even today as Israel is attacked with rockets from Gaza Strip by the terrorist group Hamas. Each and every day. He supernaturally protects these people. Let me say something here. Let's just be really clear on something here this morning. Let us not confuse the Palestinian people with the terrorist group Hamas. We have to draw a line there. You don't see this in the news, but every day Palestinian people and Jewish people eat together, they go to school together, and they do so peaceably. Over and over and over again it happens. It's the terrorists who are making this war in the Middle East, beloved. It's not Israel. As Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said this, he said, we are using missiles to defend and protect our civilians. Hamas, the terrorists, are using their civilians to protect their missiles. God has miraculously and marvelously protected and preserved his chosen people, the the Jewish race. Though it's been a very, very difficult time as we see in the news even now. So when Paul here blasts them in chapter 2 and says, you know what, your religious zealousness will not get you to God. They're stopping and they're, they're having to ask themselves, then what good is it to be Jewish? The same question you would ask if I said, you know what, coming to church doesn't, doesn't save you, doing this doesn't save you. Well, then why do it? What good is it to be chosen of God? And so Paul answers that question in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. He goes to great trouble to tell us what advantage it is to be Jewish. And he says, first of all and foremost, that they were given the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were stewards, you might say. They were guardians. They were entrusted with God's written word. Can you imagine being a people who said, you know what, I want you to take my word to the rest of the world. Here it is. Nobody else has this. This is you. It's kind of like you, know, you were a, a courier. I remember sometimes when I worked with the DA's office, I ended up being a courier. You know, a certain attorney would need a document from the DA, and he would say, Converse, get this over to the courthouse right away. I don't care how you get there, when you get there quick. And make sure he gets it. Don't lay it on a table. Put it in his hand and say, this is from the DA, and this contains this information. And you made it your priority to do that. Well, the Jews were given the priority to be the steward of God's word. And even 
today. They feel very strongly about the Word of God. They feel very strongly. They're very devoted to God's Word. In their mind, it's the Old Testament. That's fine. And God wants us to know here this morning how strongly they felt towards the Word of God. Do you know that in the Jewish culture, the Word of God is so precious to them when the Scriptures themselves would wear out the parchments because they just use them and use them and use them. They would wear out and you could no longer even use them anymore. They were just, you know, just falling apart. They would take them out and they would bury them in the ground and then they would have a thanksgiving ceremony and thank God that he even gave them these parchments. When you visit Israel today, you can go and you can visit a place called the Shrine of the Book. Big, ivory-looking dome. And in that, in that shrine is a copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in part of those copies is the entire book of Isaiah. Incredible. Saw it when we went over there. I think now they have a copy of the, the original because of all the stuff, but it's there. And that cone-shaped building, it's beautifully made. And you can walk there, and if you, you read Hebrew, you can walk right up to the, the parchment, thousands of years, and, and read literally what we have in our Bible. If you know Hebrew, you can read it in Hebrew. Why do, we, why do we have that? Because they were stewards of the Word of God. They preserved it all those years. Every little bar, every little noun, every little additive was there. Just like it is in our Bibles, in English. But it's in Hebrew. And if you've ever looked at a Hebrew Bible, I mean, they got all kinds of things. And they were so meticulous when they would copy the Scriptures. Because they had a love for God's word. That's why we have our Bibles today. Because the Jews accurately protected God's word through all those centuries. We should be thankful to them for their labor. Because we have this book today. It's his revelation to us and to them. You know that over in Israel, in the Middle East, it's a tough place. They have so much respect for the word of God that this, this, this place, the shrine of the book, basically has built-in countermeasures. So if something were to go horribly wrong in that area of the city and somehow that it would come under the attack of a rocket or a bomb, they've made this building such that all of a sudden this thing just into the ground and gets covered up. It's protected from all kinds of stuff. I mean, they took extreme security measures. Why? Because they, they have a respect, they have a love for the Word of God. I mean, the building where the Knesset meets doesn't do that, as far as we know. The rest of Jerusalem is going to be wasted one day. But you know what? They have so much respect for God's Word that somehow they made this building to where it would protect this, these parchments that they have. They're guardians of the Word of God. And we need to praise God for their attitude towards the Word of God. I remember talking to uh, uh, some folks from the, the synagogue at the coffee shop, and uh, we got into some scripture uh, 
conversation. And I remember them telling me that, you know what, we have, um, they had some lady at their synagogue teaching through the book of Matthew. Very liberal teacher. Um, so she wasn't doing it justice. But they actually are open to that kind of thing. Because they, they don't really agree with the New Testament, but you know what? They understand that we consider it to be the Word of God, and, and they're a little open to it. And sometimes you can, you can have a good conversation with those of the Jewish faith around the Word of God. You have that in common with them, at least in the Old Testament. But you know what was sad? What's sad is, even though they were entrusted with God's Word, and even though they preserved it all these years, that which they were preserving literally became a stumbling block to them. It became a stumbling block to them. Um, look over at John chapter 8. John chapter 8. The very word that they were to be a steward of and share with the rest of the world became a major issue, a stumbling block. Look at what Jesus says in Romans or John chapter 8, verse 39 and 40. It says, They answered him, speaking Christ, Abraham is our, our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I have heard from God. Uh, that's not what Abraham did. What's he, what's he doing? He's calling them to the carpet. He's saying, hey, wait a minute. You're saying you're following the word of God. And yet, that's not true. Abraham wouldn't have done what you're trying to do to me. Look at John chapter 5, verse 39. He wants to show them very clearly where he's coming from. John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them, what? You have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Uh-oh. Verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What happened? The very scriptures that they were entrusted to, the very scriptures that they respected, became a major stumbling block. And they were quick to say, oh, we're of Abraham. We're of... And Jesus pointed them right back, hey, wait a minute. You're not going to use that argument with me. Yeah, you search the scriptures... And you do so, he says there, diligently is the idea, because you think in them you have eternal life. It's very important that you understand what he's saying here. You're not saved, beloved. Listen up. You're not saved by your knowledge of God's word. Do you understand that? That doesn't save you. You can study this book from cover to cover till the time you die. You can memorize the whole book of the Bible. 
every book that's in there, every little word, and be able to recite it, that's not going to save you. What's going to save you? Taking what you learn from this book, right, and applying it to yourself. That's the stumbling block that the Jews had a problem with. I mean, from the very beginning, we see Christ. We see him in Genesis. We see him in Deuteronomy. We see him in the Psalms. We see him in Isaiah. We see him in the prophets. We see him over and over and over again. And you, as, as someone who's a believer, it's, it's like, how could they actually fulfill these prophecies and hang Christ on a cross not realizing that they're killing their own Messiah. Because knowledge alone is not good enough to save you. That's why it's so important with your children that you're not just teaching them knowledge. You're not just teaching them intellectual facts about the Word of God. I mean, you have to have that foundation. But then hopefully you're following up with it and saying, well, how does this apply to you? Because if your kids' heads are just filled with a bunch of facts when they graduate high school about the Word of God and there's no transformation in their life, they go to college, you know what? You're going to be crying in a matter of months probably when your young one is off in left field spiritually. It's so important to understand the facts as they relate to the Word of God, but also apply those to our lives. And what Jesus is saying here is, you know what? You've, you've searched the Scriptures because you think in them somehow, by just reading this book, you're going to get saved. It takes an act of God to save someone. He's got to come down supernaturally and call that person and save that person, transform that person. As we read in Ephesians, it's him that does the work. It's not us. Now, we can grease the, slit of the, the, the slide a little bit. We can, we can hopefully lay down a foundation for our kids. But don't be impatient with God working in the, in the hearts of your young people. Don't be pressing them at every, every turn. You know, well, do you want to receive, do you want to pray this prayer? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? Because you know what? Basically, in the end, a kid will say, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And then you put your stamp of approval on him. Oh, Johnny prayed a prayer, so now he's got to get baptized, and now he's, he's a Christian. Wait a minute. Has Johnny changed? Or is Johnny the same kid he was before? <laughs> or Susie, or whatever the name is. It's so important that we understand that. And that's what Jesus was trying to get across to the Jews of his day, and that's really, as we go back to Romans chapter 3, that's what Paul is trying to get across to these Jews. And next week, we're going to look at how he answers these questions. I would encourage you to read Romans 3. I'd read it every day. Read it a couple times a day, because there's a lot going on here, and it's going to take your grasp of at least understanding where he's going and what he's doing so you can understand what we're going to look at. But a lot of these questions he's posing are questions that he's saying, hey, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> and he answers them. But I want to ask you this morning, as the Jews have helped us with the preservation of the word of God, 
What is your attitude toward this book we hold in our hands this morning? Is it something that's precious to you? Or is it something that, eh, I take it or leave it as long as I get a sermon once a week, I'm good. Are you reading this book throughout the week? What's your attitude when it comes to Bible study? Is it, ah, been there, done that, I don't need that anymore, I'm, I've been a Christian all my life, I've been a Christian for 40 years, I don't, I don't need to go to a Bible study with some other people. If that's your attitude, you need to repent. You need to ask God, man, why don't I have a thirst for the Word of God? Why aren't I desperate to hear His Word taught? Why aren't I desperate to come together in the middle of the week with other believers around this precious book that has so graciously been granted to us and and discuss it and study it and learn more about it? Why don't I have that attitude? Wednesday night we looked at Psalm 1. I just want to read part of it for you. I'll just read the whole psalm. It's a great psalm. But this basically outlines what happens with folks. And they lose that delight. It says, blessed is the man, or happy is the man. You know, you can be a Christian and happy. Do you understand that? Now, we don't become a Christian just to be happy, but it's okay to be happy and be a Christian. There's nothing wrong with that. So wipe the weird look off your face and put a smile on there and let people know that, you know what? You're a believer and you're happy. The world needs a little happiness today. Well, that word blessed means happy. Happy is the man, and then he lists a bunch of stuff. He says, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Oh, okay. Nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Then he brings up the other side. But his delight, what do you delight yourself in? What do you like to do? I was talking with someone the other day. We were talking about motorcycles and just getting on a bike and just riding over on the coast. And that's a delight. I love to do that. Don't do it anymore because I'm on a motorcycle. But used to. And I remembered back, man, I used to just love that. Cool breeze in your face, not a care in the world. You're just driving. What do you love to do? It says here, his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in this book. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its, light is, its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Do you want prosperity in your life? Do you want success in your life? Get your nose in the book. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What's your attitude toward the word of God? A lot of people have died, have given their lives to protect this book that we hold in our hands. Are we delighting in it? Or is it just another thing on our list that we check off? Oh, I've got to do my devotion, that's right. got to keep up with my Bible reading thing. Why not stop and ask God, you know, when's the last time God spoke to you through his word, rather than just reading it? 
Ask him to speak to your heart, to encourage you, so that you can encourage others. That's what coming together as Christians is all about. That's what the church is all about. It's not about songs. It's not about music. It's not about entertainment. It's not about Sunday school. It's about learning the word of God together, corporately. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that as we uh, get into this chapter of Romans, Lord, there's going to be a lot that's going to be answered for us in the coming weeks. But Lord, also, I, I pray that we would come to understand that as believers, we also are stewards of your word. And that you have given us an extreme privilege to be able to hold in our hands our own personal copy of the word of God. that has the potential, that has the power to change people, to transform people, to give us purpose, to show us your will, your desires. Lord, help us to repent if our attitude is lethargic when it comes to studying your word. Lord, I just know over the last four weeks, I haven't taught, three weeks, whatever, four weeks, the first Sunday I've taught, and I can tell you firsthand, became lethargic in my Bible study, became lazy. Why? Because I didn't have to prepare a message. Lord, that's how many of us are. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us a renewed vigor inside, a new desire to explore and to learn new things about your word. And as parents, that we would be able to share those things with our kids that we'd see our kids not just know facts about the Bible, but really come to glean the wisdom and the principles that we find in there and apply them to their lives, that they could live lives that are pleasing to you. Lord, we pray for each soul that's here this morning. Lord, if there's somebody here who has yet to put their faith, their trust in you, to cry out to you, a holy God saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm desperate for your salvation. Lord, there's nowhere else I can go turn. I pray that they would pray that prayer in their heart, that they would mean it, they'd be sincere. And Lord, that you would save them, you would draw them to yourself. And Father, I pray that as we leave this place today, that you would take with us the message that God does save. Lord, this world is so filled with sin, so filled with strife. Think of just what's going over in the Middle East and innocent civilians being harmed children. Lord, we, we know this is something that is, is from the, the pit of hell. But Lord, at the same time, we pray that somehow that would draw them to truth, draw them to Christ. We ask you to bless our day today in Jesus' name. Amen.